Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. To celebrate the publication of his latest book, Another Light, Jacques-Louis David to Thomas Demand, Michael Fried presented a film screening and lecture at the National Gallery of Art on February 22, 2015. After showing Thomas Demand's brilliant stop-motion film Pacific Sun, 2012, Fried presents his analysis of the film, both in its own right and in relation to Demand's much-admired photographic work. The book called Another Light uh, is a collection of linked essays that begin um, with uh, Jacques-Louis David in the 18th century and move on to uh, the great, the late great Theodore Jericho and the Raft of the Medusa, uh, the great German romantic painter Caspar David Friedrich, um, Gustav Kayabat, uh, the art critic Roger Fry, and then two contemporary works of something like film, one by Douglas Gordon and the last one by Thomas Demand. And when you're invited to launch a book, it's actually a tricky assignment because you don't know quite what to do. I mean, uh, the book is out, um, so what do you exactly talk on? And it occurred to me that what would make sense would be to actually, I'm going to read you the text of, as a lecture, um, the last essay in the book, which is about a two-minute stop-motion film, and I'll explain exactly what that means, called Pacific Sun, um, made in 2012 by the German photographer and filmmaker and um, all-around totally brilliant person, Thomas Demand. So there's a short epigraph which comes from uh, the great poet uh, Rilke's ninth Duino elegy. The epigraph says simply, once for each thing, only once, once and no more, and we too, only once, never again. But to have been once, even though only once, this having been earthly seems lasting beyond repeal. So on July 30th, 2008, the Pacific Sun, a cruise ship carrying more than 1,700 passengers, was rocked by heavy seas during a severe storm about 400 miles off the coast of New Zealand. The swells reached heights of seven meters, and the wind measured more than 50 knots per hour. The worst of the buffeting was fairly brief and was captured by an internal CCTV camera in the ship's bar. Soon, copies of the video were posted on YouTube, where they've been watched by more than a million viewers. You can go home, and if you type in Pacific Sun, you can see it. When Thomas DeMond moved from Berlin to Los Angeles in late September 2010, for the first six months as a visiting artist at the Getty Research Institute, one of the projects he had in mind was to make his most ambitious film to date, based on the Pacific Sun footage. To this end, he rented a studio and set to work. The film Demand eventually produced, the one you've just seen, lasts something over two minutes, really just about two minutes and two seconds, roughly the duration of the violent buffeting just referred to. The medium is stop motion. That is, the film comprises 2,944 frames, each of which was photographed individually as a still with only extremely slight and precise changes in the disposition of objects from frame to frame. As for the objects in the setting, 
demand proceeded as he has always done, by making, with the help of assistants who did the bulk of the actual fabrication, full-scale cardboard and paper models based for the most part, but not exclusively or slavishly, on items in the original video, chairs with arms and without, tables of various shapes and sizes, a bookcase, a large upright piano-like credenza, a refrigerator, a TV-type screen on the bar, a small printer also on the bar, a flower pot containing a small plant, a yellow plastic mop trolley with mop, the last two make only brief hectic appearances, a metal pail, metal coffee dispensers, a hanging lamp, a small vase with a flower in it, cups, plastic ketchup bottles, napkin dispensers, ashtrays, a milk container with a straw, crushed ice, lemon slices, onto which the bar printer falls, a woman's sandal, what appear to be pencils or straws and pieces of paper. No doubt the list is incomplete. According to demand, no less than 55 chairs had to be constructed, a number that includes replacements for ones damaged in the course of shooting. This in itself was a considerable task, not only because constructing the model chairs required skill and patience, but also because before the job of construction could begin, Demand himself had to devise the correct protocol for his helpers. One of his singular abilities, not that we are meant to think about it, is that of figuring out how to translate ordinary objects of various kinds, and sometimes not at all ordinary ones, such as space vehicle trainers, into their paper and cardboard equivalents. So much was familiar territory. But where the project broke new ground for Demand, was the problem it posed of replicating, more or less, the infinitely varied and complex movements of the individual objects as the giant waves struck the Pacific sun. At this point, the artist summoned a dozen professional animators who ended up working long hours for three and a half months on what DeMond calls the film's choreography. It's hard to imagine this being feasible anywhere but Los Angeles. Their labors involved in the first place analyzing frame by frame the movements of the objects in the original video. Together with Demand, they then plotted, literally established a shot by shot script for the precise position and orientation of each of the hundreds of fabricated objects. Finally, once that was established, each of those objects, large and small, had to be shifted into the required position for each of the 2,944 shots. Falling objects, such as the small white dishes that spill from the nearby counter partway through the film, had to be supported seemingly in mid-fall by stands and rigs invisibly placed. This is also true of toppling chairs and the like. It was also necessary to make adjustments to his camera so that the entire space, from near to far, would be in sharp focus. Most often the changes of position and orientation were extremely slight, a matter of a few fractions of an inch. What is daunting to contemplate, however, is having had to concentrate on each item individually, one twenty-fourth of a second at a time, so to speak, when the overall impression sought by the artist and his team was precisely that of unbridled chaos or disorder, as more objects than the viewer could possibly track, slide and topple first this way and then that, crashing into one another and sometimes even coming apart as they do so, or if they are small, simply falling onto the floor until the unseen waves subside and something like normalcy reigns once more. Once the shots were assembled to make the film, the question that remained concerned the soundtrack. Initially, 
at a March 2012 showing at the Getty Research Institute, Demand used music composed expressly for the film by Carter Burwell, but then decided that music of any sort wasn't right and replaced it with a track devised with the help of David Cunningham that evokes rather than reproduces the sounds of tables, chairs, and so on, sliding across the floor, banging into one another, falling over, and so on. And I'll have more to say about the soundtrack further on. Demand, of course, is best known as a photographer. By now, his standard mode of operation is familiar to anyone who follows contemporary art. He starts out from an image usually taken from the media, often of a place or situation where something criminal or suspicious or otherwise untoward has happened. So recent photographs are based on Whitney Houston's last meal or the control room at the Fukushima nuclear reactor plant. He then reproduces at full scale in paper and cardboard the scene and the objects it contains. Photographs, he then photographs with a large format camera the construction that results and then allows the construction to collapse or simply destroys it. He's no longer interested in the construction, but he has the photograph. The mostly large, life-size in feeling photographs that issue from this procedure are then laminated behind plexiglass and mounted on aluminum so as to allow them to ex be exhibited without a frame. I discussed Demand's photographs at some length in my 2008 book, Why Photography Matters as Art as Never Before, where I stressed the fact, as others had before me, that the brilliantly constructed objects in his images, while appearing plausible at first glance, quickly reveal themselves as the mere constructions they are, by virtue of certain slight imperfections, strategic omissions, overall immaculateness, and other characteristic features. So, for example, in an exemplary work, Pole, P-O-L-L, of 2001, which ostensibly depicts the Emergency Operations Center in West Palm Beach, Florida, where in 2000, a manual recount of 425,000 ballots took place until cut off by a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in the final showdown between Bush and Gore, all the ballots we see are pristine, unmarked. The telephones are without numbers or letters on their faces. The post-its are blank. There seems to be no place for workers to sit or stand. And in general, the scene ultimately conveys a sense of unreality, or rather of no reality other than that of the construction itself. The question is why Demand chose to go this route, why he took up and continues to practice this elaborate, labor-intensive way of making photographs, so different from the approaches of his somewhat older Düsseldorf-trained contemporaries, Thomas Ruff, Thomas Strutt, Andreas Gursky, Candida Hoefer, and so on. In this connection, I remark in Why Photography Matters that I'm not persuaded by arguments that hold that the point of Demand's art is to lead the viewer to reflect on the place of media and mediatic images in contemporary life, kind of standard account. I don't believe that so vague and banal an aim could begin to motivate so complex and technically demanding a project. So, no pun intended, demanding demand. Um, rather, the answer I propose is that demand's photographs function as what I call allegories of intention, by which I mean that they seek to replace original scenes marked by evidentiary traces and marks of human activity more precisely, to replace mediatic images of such scenes with counter-images of sheer artistic intention, 
as though the very bizarreness of the fact that the places and objects in the photographs, despite their initial appearance of quotidian reality, have all been constructed by the artist, throws into relief the determining force, also in a sense the inscrutability, one might say the opacity of the intentions behind them, the artist's intentions. What makes Pohl exemplary in this connection is that the volunteers at the Emergency Operations Center were taxed with the responsibility of examining hundreds of thousands of ballots in order to detect the intentions of those who marked them. In the final photograph, however, all trace of those intentions have been eliminated in favor of the very different indications of the construction of the paper and cardboard not quite simulacra of the original objects. In other words, Demand is using this approach to replace original intentions with his own intentions. It's worth stressing that the role of photography in this operation is crucial, indispensable. As actual things in the world occupying real three-dimensional space, Demand's constructions would be no more saturated with his intentions, to use a well-chosen verb of Régis Durand, French critic, who talked about Demand's images as being saturated images. They would be no more saturated with his intentions than would any other made thing, art or non-art, be with the intentions of its maker or makers. In other words, they would be ontologically on a par with the larger real-world context in which they were encountered. Whereas by photographing the objects and situations he constructs, Demand effectively replaces the real-world context with a merely depicted one, every detail and aspect of which, including lighting and point of view, is exactly what he intends it to be. It's very easy to underestimate the importance of lighting for Demand's art. This, by the way, is why it matters that the photographs are understood to be rigorously indexical, that is to say, devoid of digital manipulation. Only then can the viewer trust the image to accurately record the artist's intentions as embodied in the objects of his making and indeed in their presentation. So that one might say that in the teeth of what was soon to become the all but universal digitalization of the photographic universe, Demand found his way to a project that positively requires, in that sense, motivates the retention of indexicality. It's another small turn of the dialectic. Another way of framing Demand's enterprise is to say that the intervention of photography turned out to enable him to realize hitherto unimagined sculptural ambitions. It's often noted that Demand began as a sculptor in Dusseldorf, making constructions roughly of the sort I've described, and that over time, starting in the early 1990s, he realized first that he wanted to photograph what he had made, and then, having done so, that the photographs mattered to him more than the constructions themselves. Though he has also in insisted in interviews that the point of the operation has never been simply to produce the photographs as such. An excerpt from the 25-year-old Charles Baudelaire's Salon of 1846, specifically from the section entitled Why Sculpture is Tiresome, is relevant to the topic. So this is the 25-year-old genius Baudelaire um, writing about why sculpture is tiresome in 1846. Sculpture has several disadvantages, which are a necessary consequence of its means and materials. Though as brutal and positive as nature herself, 
it has at the same time a certain vagueness and ambiguity because it exhibits too many surfaces at once. It is in vain that the sculptor forces himself to take up a unique point of view. The spectator who moves around the figure can choose a hundred different points of view, except for the right one. And it often happens that a chance trick of the light, an effect of the lamp, may discover a beauty which is not at all the one the artist had in mind, the one the artist intended. And this is a humiliating thing for him. A picture, however, a painting, is only what it wants to be. There is no other way of looking at it than on its own terms. Painting has but one point of view. It is exclusive and despotic, and therefore the painter's expression is much more forceful. In a sense, Baudelaire's remarks, with their clear-sighted focus on the issue of intention, amount to an uncompromisingly modernist insight. And with their emphasis on considerations both of point of view and of lighting, they anticipate by 150 years demands sculptural photographic practice, a striking fact that speaks to the overall coherence of the modernist enterprise in the so-called visual arts. In other words, demand has found a way of making, you might say, sculpture and then photographing it that, that avoids, that undoes the problem that Baudelaire attributes to sculpture. So this is pretty much how I characterize Demand's project in my book, Why Photography Matters, as art, as never before. But in the years since, I've come increasingly to be struck by the thematizing of intention in some of the most ambitious art of our time, I mean elsewhere. To take a particularly impressive example, in Charles Ray's sculpture, Hinoki, a 32-foot-long fallen oak log that Ray had come across in the California wine country has been reproduced more or less by expert Japanese artisans, carvers, in cypress wood or hinoki. The task of carving took more than five years. In the end, the entire surface of the sculpture outside and inside, the log was hollow, bears intensively, even when viewed at a distance, the diverse marks of the various carving and gouging tools used to shape the cypress blocks that had been joined together to make the basic form. And those marks are perceived by the viewer as, above all, intentional, more strongly as so many carriers of intention. In the first place, at the origin of the entire project, the relatively undefined intention of the artist who discovered and rescued the original log. And in the second, more perspicuously, the multiple sharp focus intentions of the individual members of the team of elite artisans who labored for years over the sculpture to be in effect, channeling and multiplying, diversifying the artist's will, itself a work in progress, into what I take to be the ravishing final product. And Hinoki, the finished sculpture, is uh, sort of permanently on view at the Art Institute in Chicago. There are other works by Ray, such as his untitled Tractor from the early 2000s, which might be cited also in this connection, but what I want to insist on is simply that a new emphasis on intention or intentionality has emerged as a basic concern of some of the most important art being made in our time with Demand's photographs in the vanguard of this development. No doubt there's more than one reason why this has happened, but a major factor surely has been a corrective reaction not premeditated, perhaps not always recognized as such by the artists themselves, but sometimes recognized 
against the minimalist, literalist, and more broadly the postmodernist advocacy of an aesthetic of indeterminacy, an aesthetic that gave primacy to the viewing or reading subject's experience of the works in question, rather than to the internal relations that make those works what they are, or more simply, to the works themselves. Essentially, such an aesthetic conceives of the subject, the postmodernist aesthetic, conceives of the subject as constituting the work or text, making the work or text, and by his, her experiencing of it. Put another way, the work is in effect replaced by the experience, which in the case of visual art is of the larger situation in which the encounter takes place. This is, of course, a target of criticism in my 1967 essay, Art and Objecthood, where I draw the strongest possible contrast in this regard between modernist painting and sculpture, as exemplified by the work of Lewis, Nolan, Dolitsky, Stella, David Smith, Caro, and so on, and the minimalist literalist work of Judd, Morris, Andre, and Tony Smith, the last of whose account of a night drive with several students on the unfinished New Jersey turnpike leads finally to the claim, quote, this is Tony Smith, there is no way you can frame it, you just have to experience it, unquote. I mean, for me, that's like the very essence of the enemy position, okay? There is no way you can frame it, you just have to experience it, understood by him as a liberating, liberating insight tantamount to the end of art. In fact, the concept of intention is not mobilized as such in art and objecthood, but as various commentators, starting with Walter Ben Michaels, have recognized it's implicit in the very terms of my fundamental opposition between the two contending approaches. As I've said elsewhere, contemporary art during the following decades, the decades right after art and objecthood, overwhelmingly pursued the theatrical path blazed by minimalism, literalism, but with the emergence of tableau scale destined for the wall art photography around 1980, e.g. the work of Jeff Wall, Jean-Marc Bustamante, Thomas Ruff, and others, the first signs of reaction against such a tendency were there to be seen, though not yet by me. I remained in the dark for another 10 years or so. At some point in the early or mid-1990s, it's hard to say exactly when, the counter-tendency, a dialectical return, not to modernism itself, but to certain of its basic values, began to gather force, to the extent that I would now want to claim that the most vital and important artists at work today, including the photographers treated in my Why Photography Matters, as well as the four artists featured in another book, Four Honest Outlaws, Henri Sala, Charles Ray, Joseph Marioni, Douglas Gordon, are firmly in the reaction or anti-indeterminacy camp. Now, one major issue in regard to which the arguments of art and objecthood have been, from my point of view, superseded by events, is that of duration or temporality, time. Simply put, in that essay, I associate the recent modernist art I admire, this is 1967, remember, with what I call presentness, a quality I found it impossible exactly to define, but which in any case I understood to be at the farthest pole from an emphasis on duration. Whereas the experience valorized by minimalism, literalism, took place in time, it was, I wrote, quote, as though the experience of modernist painting and sculpture has no duration, not because one in fact experiences a picture by Noland or Olitsky or a sculpture by David Smith or Caro in no time at all, 
but because at every moment the work itself is wholly manifest. It is this continuous and entire presentness amounting, as it were, to the perpetual creation of itself that one experiences as a kind of instantaneousness, as though if only one were infinitely more acute, a single infinitely brief instant would be long enough to see everything, to experience the work in all its depth and fullness, to be forever convinced by it, unquote. It's from that essay. It was this intuition that led me to add to my essay the following epigraph from Perry Miller's masterly study, Perry Miller being an American uh, historian, his masterly study of the 18th century American Puritan divine, Jonathan Edwards. So the short paragraph I'm going to read you now comes from Perry Miller, but it's the epigraph to Art and Objecthood. Edwards's journals frequently explored and tested a meditation he seldom allowed to reach print. If all the world were annihilated, he wrote, and a new world were freshly created, though it were to exist in every particular in the same manner as this world, it would not be the same. Therefore, because there is continuity, which is time, and then he quotes from Edward, it is certain with me that the world exists anew every moment. The world exists anew every moment. That the existence of things every moment ceases and is every moment renewed, unquote. The abiding assurance is that, quote, we every moment see the same proof of a God as we should have seen if we had seen him create the world at first, unquote. When I read that quotation, I was simply blown away. I put it at the head of the essay. If someone had asked me why, I could have told them only up to a point. But it felt to me that it had to do with this notion of presentness. Now, in an important book, entitled From Modernism to Postmodernism, American Poetry and Theory in the 20th Century, Jennifer Ashton, uh, who teaches in Chicago, argues convincingly that the entire point of this and similar statements by Edwards is that the world is sustained from moment to moment by divine intention, not as a materialist worldview would have it, by ongoing relations of causality, for Edwards, the world is not a seamless fabric of cause and effect, which is to say that having written my essay, I place the issue of intention at the head of it, even if, as was certainly the case, I did not know what, quite know that that was what I was doing at the time. Put slightly differently, although I found in the Miller passage on Edwards an analogy to the issue of presentness that was central to my thinking, about the clash between high modernism and minimalism literalism. I could not then imagine the possibility that something like Edwards's vision of the logic of creation, or rather a secular version of that vision, might turn out to be at the core of a work of art that itself engaged directly with temporal issues, that worked positively with duration, positively with time, rather than seeking to circumvent it through one or another version of instantaneousness. But is not that exactly true of Pacific Sun? For consider, the CCTV video that inspired DeMond to undertake his ambitious project depicts roughly two minutes' worth of multifarious effects following mechanically 
from external causes. The seven strong mid-ocean swells or waves that struck the cruise ship knocked passengers and crew off their feet and sent them along with innumerable pieces of furniture and a host of small objects of various sorts skidding across the restaurant floor, where in many cases they collided with one another in unpredictable but once again mechanically determined ways. By the same token, the basic thrust of Demand's and the animators' procedures, from the design and fabrication of every single object in the film to the precise reproduction of the movements of the objects in space and time, and then the taking of 2,944 photographs of the successive ensembles, was to transform causality into intention, to replace the one by the other, frame by frame, one twenty-fourth of a second by one twenty-fourth of a second for the roughly two minutes called for by the duration of the original events. Indeed, it is that quasi-magical operation that foregrounds intentionality in this medium, the stop-motion film, much as the remaking of a scene of vote counting, of determining voters' intentions in poll foregrounds it there. More broadly, some of the most ambitious artists today, Gordon and Henri Sala among them, have pursued a diverse series of investigations having to do with movement and duration, in that regard breaking the conceptual frame of my now 45-year-old essay, while nevertheless I have argued, longer than 45, I have argued being firmly on the side of determinacy and anti-theatricality. This is not the place for even a summary discussion of individual works by those artists, though I should add that Sala's 8 minutes and 19 seconds long video, Mixed Behavior, 2003, with its DJ mixing music to accompany and then apparently to exert control over New Year's Eve fireworks in Tirana, Albania, ingeniously performs a version of the causality to intention transformation. Other videos by Sala, Long Sorrow and After Three Minutes, have been seen by me as exemplifying a pursuit of presentness, by durational means. Demand's earlier films, Tunnel, Escalator, of course, a whole set of them, also all based on constructions that he makes, also belong to this larger development. But Pacific Sun brings those concerns to an altogether new pitch of intricacy and refinement. So let me close this talk with a series of observations about the film in no particular order. One, it matters greatly that the CCTV camera in the original video on the ship, was fixed to the bar so that it didn't move relative to the rest of the room. What this meant is that in the original video, therefore also in Pacific Sun, we never actually see the room tilt under the impact of the swells because the camera tilts with it. So the room, is, what we see is always sort of, what can I say, you know, as if it's parallel with the ground, but everything is sliding because it's tilting. In, see, we, in other words, we see the effects of that tilt. The crew member just in front of the bar in the original video suddenly disappears below it, followed by the movement of chairs, tables, and other objects elsewhere in the room, the lurching and falling and disappearing and reappearing of crew members and passengers further back in space, countless similar occurrences. Moreover, it takes a moment or two for the viewer to grasp exactly what's going on. The initial rush of events seems causeless. Why is all this happening? Why is that guy suddenly falling below the bar? Within a few seconds, though, the explanation becomes clear. The viewer works it out. Even as the fact that the scene itself remains level 
never quite ceases to surprise. In other words, because the CCTV camera was fixed, the original video foregrounds causality precisely by introducing a sort of gap between the external forces that rock the ship and the consequences of that rocking within the ship's restaurant. Interestingly, Demand in his film helps the viewer bridge an equivalent gap by providing a hanging lamp, you probably noticed it on one of those runs through, in the farther room to the right, for which there's no precedent in the original video. As the lamp swings right or left according to the tilt of the ship, it records exactly the degree of the supposed angle of inclination. In fact, its movements precede the mass movements of the objects, cluing the viewer as to what's about to happen. Also, interestingly, even after one becomes aware that this is so, one has to think hard to understand exactly why it's swinging this way or that. And a similar role is played by the much slighter stirrings of the milk carton nestled in crushed ice in the near foreground. Two, as no one could fail to notice, Demand eliminated from Pacific Sun the ten or so crew members and passengers in the original video who, originally try, who desperately try and mostly fail to keep their footing in the CCTV video. In an obvious sense, this was simply in accord with his usual practice. There are no persons ever in Demand's photographs. But in the case of Pacific Sun, that absence is overdetermined by the fact that persons such as those thrown about by the storm would inevitably have been perceived as sources of intention in their own right, which would have gone totally against the grain of his project as I've described it. At the same time, removing them involved a significant change in affective tonality. In the original video, the men and women who lurch back and forth or once they fall are swept along with the furniture are at least at first a source of amusement, even laughter. In Demand's terms, they introduce an element of slapstick into the proceedings. With all human beings banished, though, and all the original objects replaced by fragile imitations, not to mention the soundtrack accompanying the controlled chaos before our eyes, the mood is quite other, and it's a nice question how exactly to characterize it. Here it's to the point that Demand, by his own admission, felt the need to introduce a hero object, as he calls it, for which there was no precedent in the video, a yellow plastic mop trolley and mop, which we just glimpsed twice. Actually, I think there's a second hero or heroine object, a largish flower pot containing a small plant, for which there is a precedent, but which figures more importantly in Pacific Sun than in the video. Each appears only very briefly. First, the mop trolley rolls from left to right under the impact of swell number four, rotating on its axis as it goes. Then it rolls from right to left, still rotating under the impact of number five, and never returns, though if we've noticed it, we continue to look for it. On the first few viewings, it's easy to miss in the general commotion. But once it catches our attention, we look out for it each time through the film. Even so, sometimes we miss it. And just as it speeds past the second time, the flower pot with its plant bursts into view from the right, bangs into a round pillar, bustles diagonally across the floor, and gets knocked over by a chair before exiting front left. So bang, 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 bang. All this very fast. We're on the verge of slapstick, but the flower pot is gone almost as soon as we take it in. There are other objects that particularly catch our eye, especially the large, dark, piano-like credenza starts out at the rear left, that ends up covering a lot of ground. But the mop trolley and flower pot introduce a note of all but explicit animism, 
almost of demonic enchantment, that recalls the fictional world of the great German romantic writer E.T.A. Hoffmann, as does the unexpected proliferation of objects, especially chairs as the film proceeds. With the fourth, fifth, and sixth wells, the object population rushing and tumbling right, then left, then right again, increases almost beyond plausibility, more and more chairs. Hoffman, in turn, is the exemplary figure in Baudelaire's 1855 essay on the essence of laughter, where the latter identifies the high, where Baudelaire identifies the higher of two modalities of the comic as what he calls the absolute comic. The lesser modality is the significative comic, which always has some worldly meaning and which is epitomized by a man falling on ice or stumbling over a paving stone. You could think of the original video. In contrast, the absolute comic is devoid of such a social dimension, coming, as Baudelaire says, much closer to innocent life in one or another respect. Maybe this is as near as one can come to capturing the expressive tenor of Demand's brilliant film. I should add, Baudelaire says, that one of the most distinctive marks of the absolute comic is that it remains unaware of itself. And that's an anti-theatrical claim, if ever there was one. It remains unaware of itself. Three, another basic difference between the original video and Pacific Sun concerns the construction of space, by which I mean the way in which in Demand's film the viewer's attention is divided, indeed torn, between the bar and dishes, milk container, TV-like screen, and other small objects in the foreground. Then the tables, chairs, columns, and so on in the main room. The continuous but in effect separate space to the rear left, where at the outset the credenza, a large refrigerator, and a bookcase are to be found. And finally, the room still further back to the right, with the long table, chairs that slide as the ship tilts, and the hanging lamp and the hanging lamp already mentioned. This is Demand's version of a similar dispositif in works by some of the other artists I've been referring to. To take a classic example, Douglas Gordon's Play Dead Real Time of 2003, uh, where we have two large translucent screens at right angles to each other, on both of which are projected different videos of an elephant in a gallery space, standing still, lying down, rising to its feet, taking a few steps forward and back, and so on. The point being that the viewer, the person in the gallery, is made aware from the first that wherever he, she chooses to look, something equally compelling will inevitably be missed. The screens, moreover, may be looked at from either side, while the third projection runs on a TV monitor set directly on the floor. So there's no way for the viewer to feel confident at any moment that he or she is taking everything in. In the case of Play Dead, however, there's no feeling of having to look quickly. Two of the three projections last more than 20 minutes, the third over 14 minutes, and there's only the elephant to look at. Whereas in Pacific Sun, one's consciousness, and here I'm appealing to your experience of the work, of have, is, is of having, one's consciousness of having at every instant to decide where to focus is exacerbated, brought to a pitch of near anxiety by the brevity of the film, the rapidity of what is happening, and the sheer multiplicity, the increasing multiplicity up to a point, of the objects and events that compete for one's attention from start to finish. The inbuilt compensation for this, it turns out, is that Pacific Sun is on a loop. When exhibited, as at the Matthew Marks Gallery in New York in the spring of 2012, 
or in subsequent exhibitions in Des Moines and Montreal, but also as we just saw it today. It plays over and over after an interval of not quite 15 seconds, giving the viewer a new chance to see whatever was missed the first or the first 10 or the first 100 times through in principle. This is a structural feature of the film, not an incidental one. Viewing Pacific Sun involves an acute sense of events happening too fast, too prolifically, and in too many distinct spaces for the viewer to take in more than a fraction of them at any given moment, and at the same time an awareness that it will be possible to see those events again, to focus elsewhere, to, for example, lie in wait for the mop trolley and the flower pot, or the wanderings of the piano-like credenza, or the fall of this or that object or series of objects, the stack of small dishes in the near foreground, or the uncanny entrance from the right toward the end of the film of a single woman's sandal, a superb detail. The sandal slides into view on its side and is then knocked flat. <clears throat> Not that on the strength of any number of viewings, one comes to feel that the work as a whole has been mastered, brought under perceptual and intellectual control. Nor is there a feeling of repetition exactly. Each viewing is too intense, too singular for the notion of repetition to have any bite. Rather, the effect is not without analogy to Edwards's logic of perpetual destruction creation, giving rise to a same that is also radically new, as if the loop structure spells out what was already implicit in stop-motion technology. Alternatively, I think in this connection of Rilke's once for each thing, only once, once and no more, and we too only once, not as an existential condition too cool, literally once, so to speak, but rather as an artistic effect expressive of such a condition made possible by the loop structure by repetition, as in the Ninth Elegy it is made possible by the unexpected and gripping reiteration of the word once, einmal. Onceness as presentness. All this is in stark contrast with what in art and objecthood I characterize as minimalist, literalist endlessness going on and on with no end in sight, the endlessness of a purely subjective experience that by its very nature cannot be framed. A final framing, or at least closing touch in the last few seconds of Pacific Sun is the movement across the floor from left to right of a broken chair leg so as to make contact with, almost to lock into, a broken square top table resting on an angle, having come free of its base. We see the tables underside. We even hear the little click as they come together. The configuration that results seems oddly right, as if we have just witnessed the making of an abstract sculpture, or at least part of one. I'm thinking of the work of Anthony Caro, not that I imagine Demand had him in mind. What matters is the quiet force of this abstract gesture. Four, I mentioned earlier that Demand replaced Pacific Sun original musical soundtrack with one that evokes the sounds that might be made by actual objects, such as those in the film sliding back and forth, banging onto one another, falling over, dropping onto the floor, and so on. This was, I think, a good decision. It may be true that, as Demand earlier remarked in an interview with Daniel uh, Kelman, Quote, obviously the most idiotic solution to the soundtrack, this is demand, would be a realistic soundtrack with the chairs making chair noises because they aren't chairs, just the idea of chairs. It's tricky. At that moment, he seems still to have been thinking of a musical accompaniment. But some relation to chair noises and the like proved necessary. 
as if any musical soundtrack would in the end have remained too remote from what was taking place on the screen to be anything but anodyne, intensity diluting in its effect, as if true, the image track's inherent musicality would have been obscured by such a soundtrack. In its present form, the film begins with the sound already at a considerable volume. One senses of a kind of hollow rumbling or thrumming as of a ship's engine, quickly punctuated by impact noises of various sorts, mainly in a low register with just a few sharper noises as of objects falling, and at one point toward the end a sound like small bits sprinkled on a hard surface as pieces of paper and what appear to be paper straws suddenly enter the scene from the right foreground as if blown by a gust of wind. Is there a background sound like wind as well? It is impossible to be more precise. I say this after having listened to the track 50 or 60 times, if not more. In any case, the effect is simultaneously one of intimate commentary on what is visibly happening and of a palpable distance from it in that the viewer cannot but be aware that the immaculate objects he, she is tracking somehow lack the weight or solidity to produce these particular sounds. And yet the movements of the objects based on the CCTV video are predicated on fidelity to the weight and solidity of the original objects as impacted by the external force of the swells. There's a subtle mismatch here that grows more obvious with repeated viewings. Put the other way around, the soundtrack acknowledges the relative lightness and indeed hollowness, the idea-likeness of demands not quite simulacra, at the same time as it provides a sufficiently plausible account of the noises of sliding, toppling, and colliding that the actual objects would have made to lend the stop-motion depiction of those events a further degree of aesthetic authority than would otherwise be secured. The sound's important, in other words. Five. A few final, perhaps less than fully serious, remarks. In a well-known essay, Shipwreck with Spectator, the philosopher Hans Blumenberg begins by noticing that the ancients considered sea voyages transgressive of natural boundaries, hence likely to be punished. Blumenberg writes, The powers and gods responsible for the sea stubbornly withdraw from the sphere of determinable forces. Out of the ocean that lies all around the edge of the habitable world, habitable world come mythical monsters, which are at the farthest removed from the familiar visage of nature and seem to have no knowledge of the world as cosmos. Another feature of this kind of uncanniness is that myth assigns earthquakes, since time immemorial the most frightening of natural occurrences, to the sea god Poseidon's realm. In the half-mythical explanation given by the first of the Ionian natural philosophers, Thales of Miletus, earthquakes are compared to the swaying of a ship on the sea, and not only metaphorically, since for him, dry land floats on the world ocean. That's Blumenberg. Now, it turns out that an unforeseen complication encountered in the making of Pacific Sun was the frequent occurrence during the night of very slight seismic shifts, the sort no one in Los Angeles particularly notices, that required Demond and his team to readjust the positioning of the paper and cardboard chairs and other objects when they arrived at the studio in the morning. Demond himself has alluded in interviews to the hubris involved in a project of this nature. Mythically speaking, correcting for earthquakes seems an appropriate price to pay. Thank you. 
This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 